quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Trade tariffs turn political. President Trump threatening Mexico with tariffs if they don't do more to tackle U.S. migrant flows. Beijing's blacklist. U.S. firms bracing for the release of China's own naughty list. And a billion dollar burn. Uber's earnings show a lot of spending, but a lot less worry about competition. Shares rise pre-market. It's Friday. Let's make a move. to the show. It is Friday. I tell you what, it may have been a holiday-shortened week, but we've had no shortage of news flow. And today, once again, we're talking about tariffs, this time on Mexico. As I mentioned there, the president threatening to ratchet up tariffs on Mexico if they don't do more to prevent migrant flows into the United States. As you can well imagine, the global reaction from investors is negative. Take a look at what we're seeing right now. The latest uncertainty, U.S. futures pointing to a drop of 1% or more. We've also got month end, so some pairing of positions to watch today, and that's going to impact flows as well. Europe also under pressure. German stocks taking the biggest hit over in Europe. We've got the DAX off by what, some 1.7% right now. Remember, German car makers like Volkswagen have operations in Mexico, and this is key. When you think about Mexican exports, other countries importing, you have to think cars, you have to think car parts, global supply chains, and I'm talking layers upon layers, five, 10, 20 layers. I'll take you through all the details. Take a look at this graphic, though, because this is key. It's a list of the most important goods coming into the United States from Mexico. Number one, car parts. Number two, trucks and buses. And number three, finished cars. The bottom line, guys, you can't manufacture cars here in the United States without using parts that have been made in Mexico. And Deutsche Bank has even quantified this for us. 35% of U.S. auto exports include imported products, much of them Mexican-made. This has huge ramifications for car prices, for car demand, because remember, and we keep saying this, American firms pay these tariffs. The other big question here, of course, is what happens to the NAFTA deal Mark II, the MS, US MSCA, what happens to that deal and the ratification of it now? Who knows? So many questions, and we'll try and answer them for you throughout the next hour. But for now, look at this. U.S. auto stocks tumbling pre-market. We've got shares of GM, the largest automaker, in fact, in Mexico, set to fall more than 4%. Fiat Chrysler down more than 5% right now. Ford shares also under pressure. 
Let's get to the drivers and quantify for you what we've seen in the last 24 hours. President Trump punishing Mexico for failing to stop people from crossing the border into the United States and he's using his favorite weapon of choice, tariffs. We could see tariffs of 5% hitting all Mexican imports on June 10th if Mexico fails. Then to stop the flows, tariffs could rise 10% as of July 1st, 15% on August 1st, reaching 25% by the start of October. All right, we've got this story covered from all angles for you. We've got to Gabriela Frias. She's in Mexico City for us. Peter Valdez de Pina is going to give us the car angle and the impact there, of course, too. But Paula Monica, let's talk a poor reaction about what we're seeing here in the result in the markets right now. Two things for me. A second front in the trade war, two of the United States' three largest trade partners, and everyone looking at this and going, what does this mean for the economic outlook in the United States? It can't be good. That's right, Julia. Obviously, there are bigger concerns today about these trade tensions with Mexico and China and what impact that will have on consumers, because ultimately, as you pointed out, they're going to be the ones that will pay higher prices as a result of these tariffs. You have retailers already warning that prices are going to be going up. Costco, which reported results last night, their CFO said during the conference call, admitted that prices are going to increase on a variety of products. And keep in mind, this is Costco, a company that makes its name by keeping prices very, very low. They are a bargain warehouse retailer, and they're going to be raising prices. Yeah, it's such a great point. I was going to say double whammy, but I think it's triple, quadruple, you name it. Gabriella, come in here because obviously the key reaction now is what do the Mexicans do? Do they slap retaliatory tariffs? What happens to their part of the NAFTA Mark II trade deal here? And at a time when I read that they've deported some 37,000 plus migrants to Central America, can they stem the flow here? Julia, Paul, Peter, good morning. Um, Mexico is doing its part. That's what President López Obrador has said since yesterday after knowing, after um, hearing about this uh, terrible news for Mexico, for businesses, for consumers even, because uncertainty comes back to the game. The Minister of Foreign Relations has traveled to Washington and he does not have a specific meeting with a specific U.S. authority, but he's going to remain in Washington, in the Mexican embassy in Washington, looking for those critical meetings to talk about this and look for a point, a common ground so that um, by June 10th we don't have these which is one of the worst scenarios. Very briefly, I wanted to also uh, set the scene for you. Only 24 hours ago, the Mexican authorities were pretty much popping up the champagne after announcing that the Mexican Congress was going to start the ratification process of that USMCA you were talking about. President Trump pretty much ended the party. I mean, that's shocking, isn't it? And of course, the White House is pushing for that here in the United States as well, a a huge complicating factor. Peter, come in here because I've mentioned already at the start of the show the impact, particularly for car trade between the United States and Mexico, but more broadly. Just talk to us about the impact here for some of the big U.S. car makers in particular. Well, in that same Deutsche Bank uh, report that you mentioned, U.S. automakers, they said, will be particularly hard hit. One reason is that one of the biggest areas that will be hit by this Pickup trucks, full-size pickup trucks. That's right where domestic automakers live. Silverados, F-150s, those are trucks that that rely on Mexican-made parts. Some of them are are sometimes assembled in Mexico. So that's a very difficult. Prices will go up. And ultimately, 
it's consumers that will pay and consumers who might pair back on buying their next new car. Yeah, it has a direct economic impact. And of course, we keep saying it's the strength of the U.S. consumer that's so critical for the U.S. economy going forward. Pete, Paul, and on that point, is the backstop here for the president always that the Federal Reserve will kick in? And if we've got a real problem in the U.S. economy, they'll cut rates because that's what the market and that's what the bond market in particular has been saying all week, I think. Yeah, you have the yield curve having inverted, Julia. Fed funds futures are now indicating several rate cuts by the end of the year. But here's the problem. I'm actually going to have a story on this on CNN Business later today. At the same time that you have these concerns about a potential hit to U.S. economic growth, you also have rising inflation. The job market in the U.S. is still healthy, which the president loves to point out. Wages have gone up. That could be inflationary. And these tariffs on Mexico and China could also lead to higher prices at many big retailers, not to mention, as Peter pointed out, higher prices for cars and trucks. So if the Fed is looking at the situation and realizes that, yes, growth could take a hit, so we should cut rates, but also inflation is creeping higher, now all of a sudden you get stagflation. So what does the Fed do? Do they cut rates, raise rates? I'm guessing they probably just sit tight and see how this all plays out. Yeah, and hope peace comes as a result. We shall see. Paula Monica, Peter Valdez de Pina, and the Gabriela there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right. Let's move on to our second driver, and it's again a further front in the trade war. Retaliation in the trade war with China. The nation is creating a blacklist of foreign companies found to have cut off supplies to Chinese firms. Matt Egan is following the story. A direct result, it would be argued here, of what we've seen the United States do as far as China's Huawei is concerned. A lot of U.S. companies here will be eagerly watching to see if their names are listed. Tim Cook must have his head in his hands. Matt Egan, tell us more. So, Julie, I think it's another reminder of the unintended consequences from yeah. trade wars. China announced today that it will create a blacklist, or as they're calling it, an unreliable entity list for companies that violate market rules. They say that it will include firms that block supplies to Chinese companies for non-commercial reasons. Now, the exact details, including the timing and which companies will be on this list, are not clear yet. But as you mentioned, this is clearly a reaction to the U.S. crackdown on Huawei, which really is the crown jewel of China's tech ambitions. U.S. officials announced an, um, an export ban on Huawei that effectively um, bans U.S. companies from doing business with Huawei. Now, um, U.S. officials say that Huawei is a national security threat, and that's why they've done this. But that's a charge that Huawei strongly denies. And they say that the United States is simply trying to put Huawei out of business. Now, even though Huawei is a it's a Chinese company, you know, it does business with a lot of foreign firms, including U.S. ones. You know, last year alone, Huawei purchased 11 billion dollars of goods and services from dozens of U.S. companies, everything from uh, computer chips that it bought from Qualcomm to uh, software that it purchased from Microsoft to the Android operating system of, Andro of uh, Google. So, you know, in many ways, this, uh, this threat of a, of a blacklist is a, um, a shot across the bow of Silicon Valley. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, Julia, this is just a kind of a reminder of um, the asymmetric risks of retaliation in a trade war. You know, we're no longer just talking about 
adding up uh, tariffs that each side have placed on each other. We're now talking about um, things like, you know, uh, restrictions on rare earth minerals, um, whether or not it would make any sense for China to uh, sell some of its U.S. Treasury holdings, boycotts of U.S. companies, and now this blacklist. So uh, clearly, you know, the trade war is, uh, is getting real here. Yeah, the unintended consequences, as you said. Well, watch the chip makers, of course, and they've been punished over the last couple of weeks. The question is, that how much bad news is now in the price, and could there be more? Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on now and talk about a stock that's going in the opposite direction now, which is Uber. Investors hailing Uber's first set of results. This despite a $1 billion cash burn in the quarter. It's up over at 2% pre-market. Claire Sebastian has the story. A fascinating business model for me. Claire, on this one, you can burn a billion dollars in the quarter and your share price rallies. Talk me through this one. Yeah, Julia, from everything that we know about it, what a good earnings report should look like. This definitely wasn't that, but relative to expectations, this was slightly better than expected. Uber had uh, put out unaudited numbers uh, around its IPO filing, and this came in, you know, revenue was at the higher end of what was expected. The loss, even though it was a billion dollars, was roughly at the lower end uh, of what was expected. So that was a, a slight positive for Wall Street. And there were some other vaguely positive signs. They said that costs when it comes to uh, sales and marketing should start to come down in the second quarter. Darek Sashahi talked about opportunities in new countries. He named about half a dozen countries where he sees regulatory openings uh, where Uber might be able to grow its customer base. Uh, and interestingly, he talked also about cross-selling. We know that Uber Eats uh, is a much faster growing mm. part of the business uh, than the ride-hailing core. And he said that 50% of Uber Eats users don't actually use ride-hailing. So while they've been using ride-hailing uh, to funnel customers into Eats, they can now start to do the opposite. So I think that was a sign of potential growth going forward for Wall Street. Yeah, that's quite fascinating, actually. You use Uber Eats, but you don't use the ride-hailing, and perhaps you could be encouraged to do so. The interesting thing for me as well on the call was how he talked about competition and the fact that we know in the United States they've been undercut on price by competitor Lyft. His suggestion that perhaps going forward they could compete more on brand rather than pricing, and that would then give Uber the advantage. That stood out to me. Yeah, that was really a really important part of the call. That's a, a big reason why the stock price, I think, is up today. It's also a big reason why you see Lyft's uh, stock price up today. He hinted that the price war uh, for drivers and incentives and things like that between the two companies might be starting to end. He said uh, that t competing on brand is quite a healthier mode of competition than just throwing money at a challenge. But Julia, they continue to throw money at the challenge in the last quarter. Uber spends an enormous amount to be the market leader. Some of the, the numbers here, ride-sharing money spent on driver incentives more than doubled in eats. That number more than tripled. And that is outpacing uh, the growth in revenue. And they're not out of the woods yet when it comes to market share in the U.S. If you look at Uber's revenue growth up 20% in the last quarter compared to Lyft's up 95%, that would suggest they're still losing uh, market share. So they still have some work to do. And this will be a, a delicate dance going forward. Yes, if we're looking for a path to profitability, it's still a long path ahead. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. Hungarian police are suggesting that the fatal boat crash on the Danube River in Budapest may have been caused by human error. The captain of the second vessel has been detained. Seven South Korean tourists were killed in Wednesday's accident. 21 people remain missing. None of the passengers were wearing life jackets. U.S. Attorney General William Barr is defending his view of the Mueller report, making clear in an interview today he didn't simply misinterpret Special Counsel Robert Mueller. He overruled him. 
matter of law, many of the instances would not amount to obstruction. As a matter of law. As a matter of law. In other words, we didn't agree with the legal analysis, uh, a lot of the legal analysis in the report. It did not reflect the views of the department. It was the views of a particular lawyer or lawyers. Uh, and uh, so we applied uh, what we thought was the right law. Barr repeated his criticism of Bob Mueller, saying he should have made a determination as to whether the president engaged in criminal activity or not. This in response to public comments Robert Mueller made earlier this week, of course. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But still to come, unfriended Facebook shareholders try to loosen Mark Zuckerberg's grip on power. We'll tell you how that turned out. Hint, not happening. Stay with us. You're watching CNN. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. And U.S. investors are looking ahead to a sell-off in the markets this morning. All the major indices, as you can see, off the Nasdaq, in fact, bearing the brunt here once again, down some 1.3%. This, of course, as we've been discussing already throughout the start of the show, Trump, President Trump threatening Mexico with tariffs if they don't do more to stem migrant flows. A global flight to quality continues to the 10-year yield now lying at 2.17%, as you can see there. The German Bund 10-year yield hitting fresh record lows earlier on in the session. Almost half of European government bonds now have a negative yield. Currencies, safe havens, we're keeping an eye on those, the yen and the Swiss franc, all trading higher in the session. As you can see, the Japanese yen outperforming there versus the US dollar. The dollar also higher, as you can see, by some 3% versus the Mexican peso, the initial reaction to uh, the president's announcement yesterday. Joining us now, Rishi Sharma, chief global strategist and head of emerging market equities at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Always a pleasure to have you on the show and to have you here. Yes, Julie. As a global investor, whether you trade for the short term, the medium term or the long term, how do you manage this kind of risk environment when an announcement like that has global implications? Well, you don't. I think that the broad picture which we've been speaking about in the past is we have to accept that we're in an era of deglobalization that we had this sort of unfettered globalization for the last three or four decades. Yes. And post the global financial crisis, we're in an era of deglobalization and it's sort of manifesting itself in these salami slice type cuts. So I think that's what is the best that you can price in. And I think that's what's even there for the global economy, as I've been sort of discussing with you in the past. There are three Ds, as I put it, which are really dragging down global growth, yes. deglobalization, demographics, and debt. And so, therefore, the global economy remains weak, and deglobalization is a big theme, which is sort of putting a lid on global growth everywhere. Particularly if you've got tariffs being slapped on nations like Mexico, it throws up the rewrite of NAFTA Mark II, whether or not the three countries, Canada, Mexico, and the United States, will even ratify that now. The, the point about this, and you're saying this, the deglobalization and the sort of lashback that we're seeing here is having, even in the short to medium term, economic consequences. Can Mexico respond to this? Do you think we see retaliatory tariffs? Because we've got a fresh president in, in Mexico, yes. AMLO. He's a populist of his own. I mean, he made a, a comment this morning or in a letter that he sent last night suggesting that, you know, 
America's policy of America first is a fallacy. Where does, particularly for this part of the story, where does that lead for Mexico? Well, I think that, you know, like, they're really, like, in a hard uh, spot here. But if you look at the sort of commentary this morning coming out of Mexico in terms of what the ministers are saying yes. out there, it seems a lot more conciliatory and calm. So I think they understand that this is something which hurts. And also back, if you look at the reaction, this is something which hurts the US also a lot. Right. Because if you look at the reaction of the auto stocks this morning, you can see that this is something, and also some of the key Republican states in the South, you know, where the linkages are very strong with Mexico. So I think that this is a very different battle compared to the one against China. And this is where I think a lot of people will be disappointed because so far it seemed as if finally the Trump administration was getting a strategy here, which is to sort of focus on China, to make this all about China, and to leave the allies out of it. So this is a real curveball, and this is the kind of uncertainty we have to deal with as far as the, uh, the current administration is concerned. I mean, you make two really important points. The impact on farming states, some of those, the soybean angle with China as well, and the exports that they provided to China, but also with Mexico here too. And, and to your point, two weeks ago when they removed the Canadian and the Mexican steel tariffs, we thought that the president was choosing his battles and he was going to fixate on China. Um, and now it doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, and this can change very quickly again in terms of, you know, there are still a few days before this comes into effect. And I wouldn't be surprised if this changes. Now, there's one sort of thing that I've always said is that the president here pays a lot of attention to the stock market. He does. And that's the kind of uh, put that the, uh, the Trump put, as the market calls it, which you need to be a bit aware of. So I think that if the market starts to react to negativity to this, so far what's happened is rather benign, that the US stock market has fallen 5 or 6% yes. uh, from its highs, but it's still up like, you know, 8, 9% for the year. So it's not a really a big sort of reaction. But I think that if you begin to get any further declines from here, I think that at least with the cases like Mexico, there is a chance that the president could begin to back down. With China, I think it's a bit more complicated yes. uh, because the negotiations there seem to have, you know, gotten really into a tough spot. But I think that as far as Mexico is concerned, my feeling is that this is not something which is likely to last. That's uh, my feeling for now. You make an important point about what we've seen so far for the U.S. stock markets and the president's sensitivity to them. At the point where we're perhaps back to December, two things occur to me. One, that perhaps the president gets very nervous if all the gains of the year are wiped out. But also, we saw a Fed pivot and their patience over the markets and their decision to pull back from changing rates any further was also a huge backstop for these markets. If the Fed stops talking about perhaps cutting rates, then that gives uh, the president more latitude to perhaps to continue to play hardball with these nations, yeah, surely. Think, yes, that's true. And I think that the Fed is back in play. I think the Fed is beginning to get worried about the economic momentum here. In the second quarter, it's quite likely that economic growth in the U.S. will be close to 1% after having sort of, you know, gotten above the much cherished goal of 3% for one quarter, which was in the first quarter. So now you begin to sort of get those type of GDP prints and the stock market begins to decline uh, further from here. And I think that you begin to get a U.S. policy response in terms of both the Trump administration possibly softening some of it, but more like importantly, I think the Fed comes back into play. So this is where the bond market has been sniffing this so much better than the stock market. You know, people have been talking about the fact that the market's pricing in one, now possibly two rate cuts, and people have been very, sort of the commentary has been very dismissive of that. Yes, they have. Yeah, but I think that now the fact that you could get a Fed rate cut is seeming like a very realistic 
uh, possibility. One cut or two this year. It's just, you know, like I'm trying to say, this is still like know, an evolving story. Wind. Yeah, but I'm saying that now definitely like the sort of sentiment switch has been complete from sort of talking about how many rate hikes six months ago to now beginning to price in one, if not more rate cuts. So that, that pivot has happened completely. Do you think we get a trade deal very, very quickly? Do we get a trade deal with China this year? I'll be surprised on that. But I think wow. their things are much more complicated. But, I, you know, I think really, like, we need to step back out here. That these trade deals we get, we don't. We get lost in this sort of daily volatility and the daily the talk. Trick. Exactly. But the big picture is this. We are in an era of deglobalization. These tensions are bound to mount as we sort of uh, go ahead. Nationalist figures across the world are gaining much more in this era. And that, for me, is the big picture. Yeah. Rusha Sharma for Morgan Stanley Investment Management and the author of Democracy on the Road, a 25-year through journey through India. I'm showing the book title. I love the book. We'll talk about it again. The Market Open is next. Stay with us. and that's what we have. President Trump threatening tariffs against Mexico. The big story here today, if they don't do more to quell migration flows into the United States. What we're looking at now as a result of this pressure is the Dow on track for a sixth straight weekly loss. This is, of course, as well, the last trading day of the month. Stocks on track, in fact, for their first losing month now of the year. The 10-year Treasury also telling you a story here as we were just speaking to Rishi Sharma about the U.S. 10-year Treasury year down to 2.17%. Some real nervousness right now in the bond markets in particular. U.S. stocks, the thing to focus on, given the extent of trade between the United States and Mexico. All U.S. autos are under pressure today. GM right now down more than 4%. That is, of course, the largest automaker in Mexico. But watch some of the others, too. It's tough to gauge this right now. Fiat Chrysler down some 5% too. All right, let's give you a look at some of the global movers, some of the individual stocks that we're also watching outside of the auto sector. Dell Technologies, so Q1 earnings beating expectations. However, revenues missed. Revenues that fell in the server business in particular. That's Dell's second largest business. It was down more than 8% to $4 billion. It comes amid an industry-wide slowdown in China, of course, due to the trade war. So we're feeling it right now down some 8% in the session. Gap. Also in focus, the first quarter earnings there and sales missing expectations. The retailer also slashed its full year outlook and we saw shares closing down Thursday at the lowest level since June of 2016. The CEO called it. He said the quarter was, quote, extremely challenging and that he's not at all satisfied. He partially blamed the cold weather for keeping shoppers inside, but also said that February business was extremely slow. Down 15% in the session so far. Uber, as we've mentioned already on the show, releasing the first earnings report since the IPO on Thursday. We'd had a glimpse, if you remember, of the numbers pre-IPO, so you have to bear that in mind. They did post a $1 billion loss, as expected, but it did post a profit on a year ago. The revenue is coming in at the higher end of the expected range. It's still its closest, slowest quarterly growth rate since it started disclosing results in 2017. Right now, 
up some 3.3%. All right, let's talk about what we're seeing here. Art Hogan is Chief Market Strategist at National Securities and joins us now. Art, we called you this morning in an emergency once yes, we saw these headlines. Yeah. What do you make of, of what we're seeing right now? Because we have seen these markets been under pressure for a couple of weeks now. But again, a fresh blow here in addition to the tensions with China. Yeah, that's so true. So the market's down about 5.5% over yeah. a five-week period. And it felt like we might get to a point where we could stabilize. Last night, we had tested the 200-day moving average and successfully bounced off that, and that's getting wiped out today. Unfortunately, this is a surprise, and it's a trade war on a different front that we weren't expecting. And now we're going to have to find out just how much damage that's going to cause. Sentiment had gotten pretty bad. If you look at the CNN Fear Greed Index, it was showing extreme fear. And the AAII uh, numbers about bearishness versus bullishness, very bearish right now. So I don't know how much worse this gets, but we're going to certainly see today that we're going to test a lot of those levels and, and come, come down pretty precipitously. You know, we've talked all week about the difference between the stock markets, the relative resilience, even given the pullback that we've seen, versus what the bond market's pricing and the fact that it's saying, look, the Fed needs to come in here and right. cut rates. And we've started to price even two cuts this year. Right. Do you believe, given your experience and everything that you know, that actually the message that the bond market's sending here is perhaps more accurate? Yeah, I think that's the, the issue is how much does economic data actually get affected by right. what we're seeing, right? Fundamentals. So some of the April data has been mixed. We've seen some bad data in the manufacturing side. We've seen some good data on the employment side. The Chinese data is rolling over, and that had stabilized in the first quarter, starting to roll over the second quarter. So there is a concern that this is the elongated trade war is starting to manifest itself in bad economic data, and that's going to force the Fed to come back in. My guess is the next move by the Fed is probably to ease. I'm not sure if it's two times this year, but certainly the longer either one of these things last, whether it's with Mexico or with China, the more it's going to affect the economy, and then the Fed will have to make a move. It's interesting that the conversation has shifted from the Fed sitting on its hands to more and more analysts that I speak to acknowledging that we see some kind of cut potentially from the Fed, and even discussing the idea perhaps of more. You also raised a great point there, which was China, and on any other day, we'd have been talking about this survey data overnight from China that actually shifted into contractionary territory. Also really important here, because the requirement, the need for China to be stimulating their economy to keep the global economy afloat here and and stable, critical. And that's another fear here. That absolutely is. Now, China's been spending hundreds of billions of dollars to stabilize their economy. They had been doing that in the hopes that sometime in the first half of this year, this trade war would be behind them. That has changed. So now that that's changed, we're seeing a rollover in both sentiment and economic data coming out of China. And unfortunately, we're going to start to see that in the United States. It hasn't manifested itself, but we're going to see it in forward-looking data. And the problem with that is, does the Fed step in and is it too late? The, the, the silver lining all of this is sentiment has already been tamped down a yes. lot, right? So it's, it's not as though we weren't coming into this with a negative attitude. My only fear is that the Fed waits too long to say, you know what, there's something going on here. We better step in. And if you look at all the Fed speakers we heard from this past week, it's, it's kind of a mixed picture. It's about 50-50. It's interesting. We spoke to uh, Eric Rosengren of the Boston Fed last week, and he was saying, you know, look, we don't react to to the stock market or to investors' pressure, but we do watch it. And if that's going to have an economic impact, a 
hit to consumer sentiment, which is so pivotal to the strength of the US economy, then we could react. So for me, the question is, how resilient can stocks be and how much more downside could we see, particularly given that we're still in positive territory this year, despite what we've seen? Do we go back to December if we continue to see these kind of headlines? Well, three things. And I saw your interview with Eric up in Boston. That was fantastic. And and he's pretty dovish historically, right? So for him to not lean into that, we need to do something here, is kind of shocking. And I was watching that and I was surprised. Now, I will tell you this. In terms of what we think about the market, we have to think about where earnings estimates have gone. And in the month of May, they started to come down in the back end of this year. Right. That's the danger. So if you're going to use the same multiple, this market has to go lower than it is right now if those earnings estimates keep coming down. And that's what we're keeping a close eye on. Does this affect the economy and how much does that affect earnings estimates? And if that continues to happen, the longer this lasts, the more we're going to have to take that down and we haven't done enough damage. Particularly, particularly for the big players. I mean, if we think of the tech stocks, which have also bore the brunt here, the chip makers, for example, we're waiting for China to release their naughty list, as I called it, but they're the entities that they're now more cautious about in response to the restrictions on Huawei. Apple, such a huge component of the big indexes here, the Dow, see pressure on those, greater pressure on those. And again, I just feel like it's a huge dent to sentiment here. Oh, absolutely. When you look at Dow components, there's only five companies that are up in this month of May. The rest of the components, the other 25 are down, and the ones that are down the most are those with the biggest China exposure. Think about Caterpillar, think about Boeing, think about um, Apple. Yes. And it's and it's amazing when you think about, well, you know what? China was supposed to be the place that's great for us to be. All of a sudden, it's the, it's the worst place for a company to have that much exposure, yes. especially in this environment right now. Huge, great growth opportunity, but simply not right now. Art Hogan, fantastic to have you on, as always, of National Securities Corp, of course. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but plenty to come. A big thumbs down from Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO blocking proposals to loosen his own grip on Facebook. Funny that. I talked to a shareholder about why she feels this really matters. That up next. Stay with us. to first move. Friends don't let friends monopolize power. That's what some Facebook shareholders have been trying to tell CEO Mark Zuckerberg. They voted Thursday on multiple proposals to try and loosen his grip on power of the company, but were thwarted. Why? Because he holds the voting majority. Joining me is Facebook shareholder Julie Goodridge. She's CEO of North Star Asset Management. For the past five years, she's pushed to change the voting structure and to try and split the roles of chairman and CEO. Julie, fantastic to have you on First Move. Thank Are you, you ready Julie. to accept after five years that Mark Zuckerberg simply isn't going to let control of, uh, of uh, Facebook go here? You know, I don't know that I'm ever going to really accept that. I think the, that other shareholders should be very concerned about that as well. I think it's it's time for him to really take a, lo- a good long look at his uh, strengths and weaknesses. And I think his weaknesses have been become incredibly apparent over the last 24 months in particular. Um, you know, yesterday during the shareholder meeting, he was saying what we need is more government regulation. And what's crazy about that is it's, of course, impossible for a bunch of, you know, 60-something-year-old white men to determine how to regulate a rapidly changing uh, uh, technology industry. Um, so I think that, that he's really sort of trying to pass the buck. Um, and he's not really taking responsibility for the impact that he's had over the last 24 months. 
But he's making all the right noises for now, at least, Julie, and that seems to be placating advertisers. It placates other shareholders. It even placates other investors, quite frankly, that are looking at this situation and watching the share price rise. Julie, why don't other shareholders care more about this and why aren't they fighting with you here? Well, what I've experienced as I've been bringing this up over the last five years or so is that um, other shareholders really only care about, you know, quarterly earnings and the, the price uh, increase of the stock. Now, we've seen the stock drop you know, have moments of dropping 20% overnight simply because of some uh, misstep that Zuckerberg has has taken, that the company has taken. So, you know, every, a lot of people are very, very short-term investors. We're looking at the long-term here. It was interesting because yesterday during the shareholder meeting, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, during his statement, said that what we're looking at is um, his concern that we've moved, we moved from the town square um, impact that, that Facebook has had back into the living room. So he thinks that there's a lot of growth to be had in the, you know, his living room, uh, the living room of his um, Facebook users. But ironically, it's that group that has lost complete trust in this company in terms of protecting their data over the, over the long term. So if that's where the growth from the company is supposed to come from, why in the world is he making decisions that are hazardous to that growth? You know, we've had two years of shocking news flow. We had the House Speaker this week basically accusing Facebook of facilitating Russian interference in the 2016 elections, never mind all the privacy scandals. Is there anything that could see Mark Zuckerberg removed as CEO? And would you ultimately like to see that if, if that's what it takes to lessen his power here? Mark Zuckerberg has three areas of power. One is CEO, one is chairman of the board, and one is the majority shareholder. He has 60% of the shares of Facebook. Um, yesterday, Susan Del Desmond Hellman, who is supposed to be the, the independent board member, uh, was asked a question about whether or not she would act um, act on behalf of the other board members and have an executive session regarding Mark's performance? And the answer to, her, to that question was no. So he has in place a, a board that is not going to move. Um, I cannot see how in the world anybody is going to force Mark Zuckerberg out. It would be Mark Zuckerberg himself that would have to understand his, the limits to his, his, um, his abilities, quite frankly. To your point, though, if they are about financial performance, ultimately, then the share price is going up. You don't necessarily have to worry. All the other things are a byproduct. In the end, Julie, does it come down to Facebook users? If you care enough about your privacy and your own data, then you have to delete this app and you have to turn off your profile because no one else is going to do anything. Ultimately, whether it's shareholders, he's the biggest shareholder. Advertisers right now don't care. It comes down to us as users. I think when he's talking about moving to people's living rooms, he's talking about creating sort of a sacred private space. And ironically, of course, Facebook is a media company that makes money off of placing ads. The way they do that is by having very good data about the people who are sitting in that living room. And if people don't want to share that data, that's going to lose. They're going to lose their edge. It's very different than the than the current Google platform. And I, I'm concerned about that long term as a shareholder.
Yeah, and as a, some shareholders can just sell their positions if they've got a problem, but if you have pension fund money and you're in an index, you don't get a choice. Julie, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you for joining right, thank us. Thank you. Julie Goodwin. Thank you, Julia. Great to have you on. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here, but still to come. Moving too fast, then grinding to a halt. Why Donald Trump's new NAFTA might struggle to survive in light of new developments on trade. Stay with us, we'll explain. first move and I just want to give you a look once again at what we're seeing in terms of the price action here for US markets all the majors under pressure the Nasdaq the tech heavy sector underperforming here those with greatest exposure to China once again the trade sensitive stocks are going to be under pressure here also the automakers were watching those today in light of the broader tensions between the United States and Mexico and the possible threats of further tariffs there too Let's uh, talk about what's just happened in the last few moments as far as uh, Trump, Donald Trump is concerned. He's just tweeted about those Mexican tariffs saying Mexico has taken advantage of the U.S. for decades because of the Democrats. Our immigration laws are bad. Mexico makes a fortune from the United States, have for decades. They can easily fix this problem. Time for them to finally do what must be done. What about the broader backdrop here, though, of course? The Mexican president has hit back against these tariffs, saying, I believe President Trump will understand that this is not the way to resolve things. What does it mean for the broader trade deal? Because even before he announced the Mexico import tariffs, Donald Trump's new NAFTA deal, the US MCA, was in trouble. US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi slammed the White House for kick-starting the approval process yesterday saying Democrats need more time to have their concerns over labor rights addressed. Paula Newton joins me now from Ottawa, Canada, the third partner, of course, in this broader trade deal, the NAFTA Mark II. One can only imagine what the Canadians are thinking as they're watching the fallout here, Paula, between the United States and the Mexicans here. Yeah, think about it, Julia. They're saying we're going to stay right out of the way. I want to remind everyone that Vice President Mike Pence was here in Ottawa just yesterday touting the fact that they were going to try and jumpstart uh, the approval process for that USMCA. He even said, Julia, to that point about Nancy Pelosi, that, look, he will be on Capitol Hill this coming week to try and talk to any, he said, even the Democratic leadership to assuage some of their fears about the USMCA. And then last night, Boom, we get the announcement from Donald Trump that we're going to have this 5% tariff. It will certainly complicate the ratification, certainly com complicate things for the United States, Canada, and Mexico in terms of trying to get this trade deal uh, done in very, very short timeline. We have an election here in the fall, uh, Julia, and of course, Nancy Pelosi continues to say that they have some problems with the deal as it stands. But the important thing is, Julia, when it comes to the tariffs or the USMCA, is that the, that House leadership, those Democrats and those Republicans, especially in the House, will be listening to their constituents. How is the 5% tar tariff hurting us? If we don't get UMCA passed, how is that going to hurt us? And Nancy Pelosi will have to listen to that as well. Yeah, the balance of economics and politics always. Paula Newton joining us there from Ottawa. Thank you so much for that. 
Right, Tim, let's move on. Three of the biggest entertainment companies are threatened to boycott the U.S. state of Georgia over its new abortion law. Netflix, Disney and CNN's parent company, Warner Media, all say they will make or stop, make, may stop making films there should the restrictive law go into effect. Brian Stelter joins me now. Brian, the threat is real here. For a state like Georgia, though, does the politics here outweigh the economics or vice versa? It does seem that the, the Republican governor of the state, Brian Kemp, and other local politicians uh, are prepared to go forward with this bill. This is one of many of the so-called so heartbeat bills that have been passed by states across the South trying to provoke a Supreme Court reexamination of abortion rights. Uh, there's an expectation this is going to take many months to work its way through the courts. And many media companies are saying that if this actually does take effect, they will reconsider working in Georgia and these other states. Look, as you mentioned, it did start with Netflix and Disney and Warner Media. Those are the biggest players involved here. We've also heard from Comcast, NBC, Universal, saying they will strongly consider where to do business based on the results here. Also, some of the smaller studios, the AMCs, the Viacoms, Paramount, all of those also. So essentially, we're at this point where almost every major and minor Hollywood studio says we're going to have reservations about working in Georgia if these bills actually do take effect. Right now, it's not an economic boycott, but it is a serious economic threat. It has a political implication here too though, I mean if I just look in isolation perhaps at the women's vote here for, for key Republican states in combination when you've got senators like Chuck Grassley, a real loyalist up until this point of the president looking at the situation now with Mexico and going, I see a real problem here if you've got tariffs being slapped on Mexico, the trade war with China, are we getting to a point politically here where the Republicans are looking at the president and going, we could have real problems here if this continues. Yes, I think they are privately, but oftentimes we don't hear it publicly. You know, look at what's happened this week with Justin Amash, the only Republican to speak out for impeachment. He claims a lot of his colleagues agree with him. A lot of other GOP lawmakers agree with him, but they won't speak up. And I think oftentimes we don't see these Republican lawmakers willing to stand up against the president because they believe their supporters are more with Trump than with these senators and, and congressmen. Now, maybe the tariffs is one of the exceptions to this rule uh, because of the severe economic consequences. Maybe it will be one of the exceptions to the rule. Uh, but I, I got to say, after two and a half years of, of, of Trump presidency, I have very low expectations for Republican lawmakers. They seem very content to stay quiet most of the time. Yeah, I just think watch the Republican donors here as well. Some real nervousness behind well, the scenes. What yeah. point does it? That's true. What point does it spill over? I see a perfect right. storm brewing. Brian, always mm. great to have you on the show. Some serious Thanks. discussions though over the last two days. I prefer it when we laugh. Brian Stelter, thank you so much for that. All right, let me give you a look at the markets. Pressure. That's the name of the game. We'll be back. I'll be back in a couple of hours' time on the Express to keep you abreast of the developments. For now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Make it a safe one. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.